painful paradox of the coronavirus crisis is that charities saw a dramatic decrease in donations at a time their services were needed the most. My guest today is Paul Ronalds. He's the CEO of Save the Children Australia, and he knows this challenge well. He's long been an advocate for charities to evolve and adapt to a new funding environment. It's one reason his organisation has launched a pioneering impact investment fund, which supports social enterprises through equity and debt funding. And that's what we're all about here on the Good Future Podcast. I'm your host, John Treadgold, and I'm asking the big questions about the business of sustainability, the new economy, and how your spending and investment decisions can have an impact. In this conversation, Paul explained the intricacies of the impact fund they've launched, and we explored the lessons that the finance sector can learn from not-for-profits and vice versa. As the finance sector discovers its power to make positive change, so too are charities recognising that financial stability requires a diversity of funding sources. But I want to let Paul do the talking, so enough out of me. All the show notes are on my website, and if you want to leave a review, you can do so in the Apple Podcast app. And really, dear listener, this is the only ask I have of you. I don't have sponsors, but if you could jump onto iTunes and leave a review, it would boost good future up the charts and help get the show out to more people. All right, let's dive in to my conversation with Paul Ronalds. Here we go. Paul, thank you for coming on the show today. Great to be with you, John. Now, look, I'm going to jump straight in and ask about the challenges that 2020 and the COVID crisis has presented for the charity sector. The world's changing in so many ways, and even before COVID-19 arrived, many charities were struggling to adapt. Why did COVID hit charities so hard? Well, I think, as you said, there were a whole range of strategic challenges for charities well before COVID hit. And really what it's done has accelerated uh, some of the challenges that charities, particularly here in Australia, face. So prior to COVID, uh, fundraising uh, was already under a significant pressure. There were uh, increasing demands from stakeholders around efficiency and effectiveness and demonstrating results. You had growing competition for the, for the best talent, like many other organisations. And, you know, for many of us, a more antagonistic political environment in which we're operating. So a whole raft of these challenges that existed before COVID hit uh, have then been accelerated. So the the pressures on fundraising have only got um, more significant. The pressure to introduce new technologies that allow you to be far more flexible um, than than what you were um, prior have become greater and of course you don't have any additional resources to be able to pay for those and and traditionally charities have not done a a very good job of managing um, their back office. They're seen to be overhead, something to be avoided at all costs and so we've seen this systemic underinvestment uh, in uh, in charities' back office. And when something like COVID hits, which requires you to be able to move very quickly into a digital environment, many charities just struggled uh, with that. Organisations like Save the Children almost overnight had to redesign hundreds of programs dealing with very vulnerable communities and be able to start to deliver services that had previously been delivered face-to-face digitally. So a raft of really significant challenges, John, that have been exacerbated and accelerated by COVID. Uh, and I think, you know, in that context, for, for some of those charities that were barely uh, surviving beforehand, this um, may well be um, the straw that, that breaks the camel's back and we may well see 
certainly as as JobKeeper ends uh, here in Australia over the coming uh, few months, um, many charities going to the wall. So that's the problem. What's the solution? What are some adaptations that, that you see are really important? There's certainly no magic bullet uh, for charities. Um, they have to really um, rethink a whole raft uh, of aspects of, of their business model. And I'll, I'll use that term um, uh, in, its, in its traditional sense. So they need to rethink their, their financial model. If they've traditionally relied on, on fundraising and perhaps face-to-face fundraising, community events, how do they move those online from a digital perspective? How do they think about using fee-for-service opportunities, so social enterprises? Uh, how do they uh, find um, new donors that perhaps uh, they haven't traditionally gone after? Um, and there are there are certainly opportunities uh, in the, in the fundraising space. So so the financial model needs to be to be rethought. They need to rethink how they deliver services. So that digital delivery of services that I mentioned that we went to as as part of the response to COVID, that needs to become mainstreamed and and, um, integrated into the services that that charities like Save the Children uh, deliver uh, as just a a sort of normal part of business. Um, so, So they need to become much more digitally capable to be able to do that. They need to be much better at identifying and using and, and implementing really rigorous evidence and, and managing the data. Um, so again, that's a, another big uh, challenge. And, and in lots of ways, they need to become more politically adept uh, as well. In a more antagonistic political environment, um, you've got to be more sophisticated in the way that you're engaging, particularly with governments, both here in Australia and around the world. So there's lots of, of challenges, but I think you know we're already seeing some of the best charities find a way through. And let's then look at, at how Save the Children is managing all of that. And, and you did mention the fee-for-service pathway for funding. And, and that makes me, of course, think about impact investing. You guys have got a new impact fund. Is that sort of the pathway you see there? Is that, is that a key, key element for Save the Children? It's certainly part of the solution. So when we're thinking about diversifying our financial model and making us more resilient as an organisation, I mean, we're looking at improving some of our traditional fundraising techniques and, and making them more digitally savvy. Certainly looking at, for example, the, the massive transfer of wealth that will happen over the coming decades. So going after things like bequests in a more significant way. Um, But we are also um, absolutely increasing our proportion of revenue that comes from fee-for-service. And that has meant that over the last four or five years, so for this, for Save the Children, it certainly predates COVID, we've been both looking to start uh, and uh, acquire uh, social enterprises that are able to be both, have an impact, direct impact on, on the mission that Save the Children has, uh, as well as paying for its or having a financial model that doesn't compete with with those traditional fundraising models. So we've founded a number of businesses uh, and we've acquired now, I think we've had four mergers uh, with other charities uh, and we've um, made two for-profit purchases to really create a, a very diversified group. Uh, sort of on top of all of that, you're absolutely right, we've got our new impact fund. Excellent. Well, please do tell us more about the Impact Fund. I mean, the rationale for Save the Children starting its own Impact Fund comes from those very challenges um, that we've been speaking about. Um, so I guess there's probably three key motivations from, from um, my perspective. Um, one was a, a sense of, of frustration, John. So we've had the, had this experience of starting and growing social enterprises, but that really reinforced for us the limitations of 
uh, what we might call traditional development and social welfare approaches to solving some of the, the biggest problems. And because we wanted to have an impact at, at scale, uh, we realised that we needed to find new ways to fund some of these really promising social innovations that, that we were investing in uh, and to do it at, at a scale well beyond uh, the sort of capital that, that Save the Children had traditionally been able to bring to them. And, and so that frustration led to us saying, well, you know, we should therefore you know, have our own impact fund that gives us um, the ability to, to invest and scale up some of these social um, enterprises. So that was the sort of first motivation. The second, I would say, is probably philosophical. While the, the finance sector is increasingly offering social investments, um, uh, in our view, they're generally targeting what I would call low to, to middle social impact rather than the high social impact that our fund will pursue or does pursue. Uh, and I think in that context, there's a sort of real question about additionality uh, of many impact investments. You know, would the mainstream market have invested in them anyway? And from a philosophical perspective, I just think we need to do better than that. We are only going to solve some of the world's most complex social and environmental problems when we bring together the best of government, civil society and the private sector and we get them to, to work uh, in a collaborative way. And I really think um, our fund can be a vehicle for that new type of, of collaboration. So that's sort of the philosophical motivation for us. And then the third piece is, is sort of practical. You know, we really do believe that we, as one of the world's largest not-for-profits, are in a unique position to identify those social enterprises that can be grown through more mainstream financing uh, impact investing opportunities. So you know, we're operating in 115 countries. We've got 20,000 plus staff, uh, including some of the world's experts on, on health and, and education and child protection. We've got deep relationships with communities, with governments and, and funders. And what we want to do is leverage all of those assets, if you like, we call them the Save the Children platform, um, to be able to really grow successful social innovations um, that are aligned with our mission. Um, so they're the, they're the sort of three reasons and motivations. Um, and so far, if anything, John, the sort of hypothesis uh, that we had that that we there really was an opportunity for an organisation like Save the Children has been shown in spades. The sorts of social enterprises that are coming to us looking for both financial investment but the support from our uh, from our platform uh, have been even you know more significant than um, what I expected. We've made our, our first uh, investment in Natu College, uh, a new school um, here in Australia targeting particularly Indigenous students and, and being Indigenous-led and, and really culturally sensitive to, to the needs of Indigenous students. We hope that that will be the first of many um, such schools. Uh, and we're looking to make a range of other investments in the education and health space, particularly focused on leveraging digital technologies. So our first investment isn't particularly digitally orientated, but certainly the next couple that are in our, in our pipeline uh, are you know, have got really strong elements of leveraging new digital technologies. And I think, you know, not only will this uh, allow us to grow these businesses much faster and to have a, a great social return, you know, they're going to enable Save the Children ultimately to achieve its mission in a way that it would never have been able to do beforehand. Yeah, no, that's great. Like, there's lots to get into there. And, and one thing that really jumped out that I did want to talk to you about was this idea of creation. 
Um, you know, there's so much that the charity sector can learn from the world of finance. But of course, so too, it's vital that the world of finance learn from charities if they're serious about impact investing and really helping to solve some of these these wicked problems. Um, and and I think it's that it's sort of that entry point and the way that it's the way that those barriers are broken down. I see that as being a really core challenge. And, and we do see, you know, some impact funds that that perhaps that haven't embodied all of this heritage and and traditions and norms that, that the charity sector you know thrive on and that's what helps it operate um, and, and in the same way perhaps charities need to be more commercial and, and embrace some of the financial models how have you seen the, the interplay and breaking down those barriers yeah so I, I think you're absolutely right i mean you know impact investing's been in australia for for many many years but i would still say it's uh in a fairly unsophisticated state and in fact probably john one of the sort of key learnings for me in launching this fund uh, was actually there is still such a significant gap between uh, what investors say they want to do in terms of of impact investments and actually what they're prepared to invest in. And I think there's a range of of reasons for this. These are some of the sort of challenges, I, I think. So firstly, many, if not most impact investors are still using perhaps traditional finance tools to assess investments. And, you know, with those tools, uh, social impact is really just sort of an add-on rather than something that's integrated into those tools. I think few impact investors uh, have the knowledge and experience to be able to really robustly measure the likely social impact of an investment. And I think that makes them uh, very cautious. And I think, you know, ultimately there are still these concerns around fiduciary duties if there's any sort of sense of trading off financial return for, for social impact. And that's particularly uh, acute, I think, when uh, you're an investor that's struggling to assess the social impact anyway. And the result of all of that is that advisors, intermediaries, and even the, the investors themselves take quite conservative positions. So I think there's a whole range of challenges on the, the investor side. On the other side of, uh, of the fence, I think you're absolutely right. Many of my colleagues uh, in the charity sector are you know, absolutely focused day in, day out on the social impact. And thinking through the financial model that might sit behind uh, generating that, that social impact um, can, can be a really, you know, really significant afterthought. And often they're not necessarily equipped with the sort of skills and capabilities to be able to think deeply about what financial models might be able to be used to make a particular social intervention uh, sustainable over the long term. So, you know, I just see so many really interesting innovations in the charity sector that are given, you know, let's say three years of funding from a philanthropist or from government. uh, So that's sort of block funding. And, you know, they show real promising uh, results uh, in that, say, three years but actually there's no follow-up funding uh, and the people that have been running that initiative have been so focused on the social impact that they haven't had time to really deeply think about what the long-term financial sustainability for that innovation might be, let alone how to take it to scale that really starts to address um, some of society's biggest, you know, most complex problems. So I think you're absolutely right. We're still at a a fairly immature stage from, from an impact investing perspective. And I think we just need a little bit more, perhaps, uh, humility on both sides about what we don't understand about each other's perspectives uh, and a willingness to come together 
to essentially have one plus one equal three uh, in this context. Is impact investing disrupting the charity sector? Yeah, I don't. I don't think impact investing is disrupting the, the charity sector yet. Um, it's still too much of a fringe idea. So, so even in an organisation as large as, as say, the Children Globally, and we're uh, roughly a, a two and a half billion US uh, organisation each year, you know, Save the Children Australia and our fund is the first small example of us really using impact investing. Um, so that's a tiny proportion uh, of. Uh, the financial resources coming through through that mechanism. Uh, and there's still a lot of scepticism amongst my colleagues about using impact investing um, and when to use it and the, and the capability gap. So unfortunately, I think we're still a long way away from that disruption happening. It's another reason why we wanted to to try our hand at this fund that we've launched because you know our view is if we can demonstrate, uh, it's an effective mechanism, even at a relatively small scale. And, and our fund, uh, hopefully when fully subscribed, will be only about $10 million Australian dollars. But if we can demonstrate it at that scale, um, then I, I mean, I'm confident that other Australian charities will follow our lead and an organisation like Save the Children Globally will start to say, right, um, this can be a meaningful way of um, us accessing financial resources for a proportion uh, of our social impact. Um, and even if we only went to, you know, 10%, that's still $250 million of additional funding for us globally based on our on our current size. So it does have the potential to be disruptive, um, but uh, I think we're still a long way from there yet. And now not all impact funds are, are created equal. How, how does your model compare to a, a regular PE style impact fund? You know, do you, do you target an exit from the social enterprise? Do you take dividends? Those sorts of elements? Yes. So, I mean, all, all of those things are, you know, what you would expect to see in a perhaps more mainstream impact investment fund. I think that the key differences with our fund is, is first of all, it's prioritising the type of investment that the entrepreneurs need, not the type of investment that fits into investors' predetermined silos. So, you know, one of my real frustrations was you would go to a particular investor and they say, well, we're only interested in debt. And we're only interested in investments in Australia. Um, and you start to have this sort of quite narrow, siloed approach. What we wanted to be able to go out to uh, entrepreneurs and say, look, we're really interested in leveraging your innovative ideas to help us um, have much greater impact on our mission around education, health and child protection. We don't care whether your organisation requires debt or equity, whether the impact is in Australia, within the Pacific or overseas, uh, whether it's in uh, high-income, um, middle-income or low-income countries. If you've got something that's aligned with our mission, we've got a fund that's flexible enough to help you. And, and that's quite unusual, I think, in, in mainstream social uh, impact investment uh, opportunities. The second sort of big difference is the access to that platform. Um, so, so if you are a you know, ed tech uh, initiative that's starting up and you want to target, let's say, middle-income uh, countries, who do you go to that's got pre-existing relationships uh, with education departments that's already trusted, that's already got a, a sort of operating platform, perhaps with schools and teachers uh, in that country? Save the Children has all of that and, and lots more. Um, and that's something that a traditional uh, impact investor um, simply doesn't have. And I think the third area is that genuine commitment and ability to measure social impact. I mean, that's 
uh, what Save the Children uh, is all about. It's about the social impact that we have for children. That's the perspective from which we come. We've got deep expertise. We've got some of the world's best experts. Uh, you know, our first social enterprise that we founded was the Centre for Evidence and Implementation. Uh, it's now a $10 million business that operates in Melbourne, Sydney, Singapore, uh, and in Europe. And it's all designed around identifying the best evidence um, right around the world and helping both policymakers and practitioners like those in Save the Children apply that evidence in a way that has the greatest impact. So, you know, we've got these deep expertise around uh, impact investing uh, in, our, in our particular mission-aligned areas that most investors just can't access. And now a lot of that is really displaying how unique this fund is, and that, that's really great. Did, did that cause any challenges in fundraising, in, in, in having a, an untested model and then sort of new ground? Absolutely. Um, so, I mean, there was two really big challenges. I mean, the first challenge was the idea that a charity like Save the Children would raise its own impact investment fund at all. We've still got such stereotypes right across society and and you know, traditionally, it just wouldn't have been seen that an organisation like Save the Children would have been well positioned to do it. When you explain the rationale and, and when you really lay it out, investors start to go, yeah, okay, I hadn't, I hadn't really thought about that. But it takes a lot of, a lot of explanation, um, a lot of meetings to actually help people perhaps see the unique opportunities and capacity that, that an organisation like Save the Children can bring. The second really big challenge was that fact that we wanted to be entrepreneur orientated, not investor orientated. And uh, so many funds said, oh, Paul, you know, we would love to invest, but only if you could be only focused on Australia or if you were only focused on emerging markets uh, or if you were all debt or all equity. <laughs> um, so, so the fact that we wanted to be all of those things, again, in those narrow areas of health and education and child protection for children made it really hard for many investors to say that they could, you know, we could fit. And it goes back to those, you know, one of those challenges I said right at the outset where, you know, your traditional finance tools for assessing these sorts of investments, you know, require you to tick a box. Uh, is it debt? Is it equity? Uh, is it Australia? Is it emerging markets? What, you know, what is it? And if you don't fit uh, into one of those predetermined boxes, uh, people don't quite know what to do with you. So, yeah, I, I've spent a lot of time walking a lot of pavements um, to be able to uh, convince people to invest in our fund. And, and you know, thankfully, uh, we've found some, I think, you know, really far-sighted investors who've understood the potential of uh, our platform to, to, to not only uh, have huge social impact, but to provide a good uh, financial return at the same time. Yeah, I'd love to dig a little bit deeper into that because I think some of audience will be those sitting at the desks of larger institutions that are looking to deploy uh, funds for impact and and their first thought when they hear save the children would be well that's the philanthropic allocation that goes from the foundation that's not really what we deal with we invest we want to return and everything you've said today is is, is really clear that you know you're trying to flip that story just to, to take that last answer a little bit deeper, what were some of the sort of objections you came across and, and how did you try and explain uh, to some of these fund managers that, that you could actually fit within their portfolio? And, and that's an interesting one where it's frustrating that you may have to think where you fit in a, in a pre, uh, pre-organized or predestined sort of um, section of a portfolio rather than it being open to, to all comers. Uh, how did you sort of manage that? I mean, it was really 
trying to find those investors that were willing to be to be quite flex- flexible. And, and I mean, the best example of that was QBE uh, Insure. And, and again, going back to to your you know question there, we've had a long relationship, a long philanthropic relationship with QBE. Uh, so, so we're one of their you know humanitarian partners, not only in Australia and the Pacific, but actually right around the world. And as a, a large global insurer, they're really interested uh, in responding to and, and helping to prevent the impact, the negative impact of humanitarian crises. So we built up this long philanthropic um, relationship with QBE. And that was really probably made it a lot easier when we, for them, when we came to them and said, well, actually, you know, we think there's a proportion of what we do that can be funded by impact investing. It's still highly uh, aligned with with QBE's business. Um, so that was important. It leverages the same capabilities uh, of Save the Children that has meant that, you know, you've trusted us as a, as a philanthropic partner. Um, but actually, um, we think it's got these additional attributes where we can get a strong financial return as well. And then, of course, you sort of have to overcome the risk conversation. You know, is this going to be more risky? Uh, how do we assess the risk uh, of some of these sorts of investments that you're talking about? And actually, that's, uh, I think, another, you know, really good attribute of our fund because we're really investing very broadly in the types of investments we're making, but very narrowly in the sort of thematic areas. So that education, health and child protection, where we've got deep expertise, we think that actually we can help to, to reduce the risk for investors like QBE, which makes them you know, much more comfortable and, and overcomes um, some of those fiduciary concerns. And certainly that's where we got to with them. And they've made a really significant investment in our fund as a sort of first step to, to helping us um, scale this up, not just in Australia, but right around the world. So, you know, finding uh, partners like QBE was was really critical to, to us getting the fund away, particularly in a, in a COVID year. We started it obviously pre-pandemic, but, but to be trying to raise a novel fund um, uh, when the markets are in term, turmoil um, due to a, a global pandemic, um, you know, uh, was some additional uh, added some additional complexity to that to the whole enterprise. Well, that's it. If, if nothing else, that's a great contribution to the sector to to be forging those relationships and showing that it can be done. And, and a QBE and yourself are both sort of adapting and being flexible. And it seems the outcome's really great. So, so hopefully, yeah, my listeners can take that as a, a great case study. And now we rolling back to what you, what you were emphasising before, and that was that you're entrepreneur first. And, and I think that I, I come across so often organizations so eager to tap into impact investment funds, but so few are impact ready. They've likely put all their effort into the, you know, delivering their mission and, and they, they have very rarely thought about building a business model that's investable. And while I love, you know, your views on that, but is there sort of a risk that focusing on being impact ready can distract them from their core mission? It may do, and you're absolutely right. You know, we see huge numbers of innovations um, because we, you know, we've got that presence in 115 countries, and because we're, uh, you know, encouraging our country directors and 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 staff in those countries to uh, highlight back to us, you know, interesting innovations. Um, you know, we get a lot of opportunities that are far from, from investment ready, even though they they might be really good from a social impact perspective. So. We don't want to ourselves, you know, spend a lot of time helping organisations become investment ready. And um, we think that's a sort of specialist task. And so we've partnered with a whole range of accelerators and incubators 
in Australia and actually increasingly around the world to be able to refer those really interesting examples of uh, social entrepreneurship but that aren't yet investor ready to them uh, to help them get investor ready and then to come back to us at a, at a later stage. Uh, I think that's that's been quite a good combination. Uh, it's given the incubators and accelerators a little bit of encouragement to know that there may be an organisation and investor like Save the Children with with you know all of the uh, the the attributes and assets that we have as a sort of next step uh, if they can can make that social on, uh, entrepreneur more in, investor ready. As to distracting, well, yes, I mean I guess it does, but isn't that that's that's the challenge? Uh, if you want to be a social entrepreneur, you can't just be focused on the social impact. If you just think, focused on social impact, you've got to be funded by philanthropy or, or government grants or whatever it might be. If you want to be a social entrepreneur, you've actually got to be able to hold those two things in, in tension, both the uh, the social impact and not losing focus on your mission, um, but doing it in a financially sustainable way that rewards those that are providing the capital to, to, to your enterprise. Now, if you can't do that, you're probably in the wrong business. Yeah, look, really good advice. And I think another important factor there is is a brand. Um, I'd love to get your view on on branding. You know, a lot of my work is focused on helping impact funds communicate their mission, and that's something you guys are good at. How do you see the importance of of building a strong brand for organisations with a strong mission? And and maybe you could talk about the way Save the Children sort of has its umbrella brand and and lots of other elements underneath it. In a world where you know we're you know, there's so many accusations of, of fake news and, and post-truth and, and all of those sorts of things. I think it's perhaps more important than ever um, that you have a have a strong brand, whether you're uh, a charity like Save the Children or, or you're a, a social enterprise looking to, to be able to sort of break into to new markets. So being focused on brand is is really important. Um, and I think, you know, that's there's no doubt that for some social entrepreneurs, one of the other benefits of being associated with Save the Children is to, to sort of leverage the Save the Children brand to help um, give a, an added sense of trust um, to their um, newer brand as they're starting to really sort of establish themselves in, in whichever market. So we're, we're alive to that. I mean, I think that's um, absolutely one of the benefits that we can provide to, to social entrepreneurs. Uh, I, I know uh, it was important for Natu College, for example, our first investment to have an organisation like Save the Children uh, invest in it and that sent a really strong signal because of the strength of our brand, particularly uh, in the education space. Um, and I think that that's replicated right around the world. So uh, increasingly what we've done with our social enterprises uh, within that we wholly owned, um, we've essentially found ways to leverage both their, their new brand uh, as well as the, uh, the, the brand of Save the Children. So Library for All, which is our uh, one of our recent ed tech uh, acquisitions, uh, essentially creating digital libraries focused on on early uh, literacy uh, in in countries um, right around the world, but particularly where there might be limited numbers of of indigenous speakers uh, of that language, and therefore uh, limited access to to a, a, a properly curated library. Um, to have library for all as the sort of premier brand, but to have it as you know clearly. Um, part of the Save the Children family or the Save the Children group has been really important for its expansion. It's it's given it the the credibility to be able to go after much bigger grants from philanthropists and, and from some of the largest um, bilateral and multilateral um, uh, education donors around the world. Uh, and we've seen you know enormous growth as a result. Uh, Library for All joined uh, Save the Children in March. 
2020, just as the pandemic uh, was hitting. And within nine months, we were able to double its size. And I think, you know, this year we'll at least double it again. And all of that's just being able to come and and, and marry the, the really great innovation that is within Library for All, together with the platform, the networks, the relationships, the trusted brand that Save the Children uh, is able to bring, putting those things together allows much faster growth uh, for these entrepreneurs than, than what they would be able to achieve on their own. Yeah, that's it. Another really sort of valuable part, I guess, of, of enterprise that you look at is is to recognize that brand and that, you know, that that's a value and that's something that goes along with it. But again, something difficult to value, which is always the challenge. And look, I am going to let you go. But before I do, uh, can you give us a book recommendation? It doesn't have to be about development, doesn't have to be about charities perhaps it's just what's on the on the side table but uh yeah book recommendation would be great i've recently finished reading range by by david epstein and i think um you know it's one of the best books that i've i've read in months and i, and I do a fair bit of reading and i think it's particularly relevant to to the sort of uh, social impact space so essentially the the underlying thesis of uh, of david's book is that sort of increasing specialization is actually undermining innovation uh, and that actually the best innovations come when we bring people from diverse sectors together to help us solve, um, you know, complex problems. Uh, and so, you know, it's it's a book full of data uh, and rigor, but it's really easy to read. Uh, and I think it's uh, helping us rethink how we uh, approach um, some of these really tricky problems. So I can't recommend um, that book enough. Great. Yeah, look, that's a topic that I'm really interested in. Music to my ears. I'm a, I'm a hopeless generalist and uh, I think that's why I started a podcast because I've, I've got an endless number of questions. I'm interested in everything. How, how do you see yourself? Do you see yourself as a, a generalist or a specialist? Oh, no. I mean, I, I'm, I'm a jack of all trades, master of none. There's no doubt about that. You know, started life as a as a corporate lawyer, went into tech startups, moved into domestic NGOs, spent four years in uh, in government, come back to international NGOs. Um, so, you know, I think that's one of uh, the things that I bring particularly to Save the Children is actually, you know, I'm someone that is able to uh, easily move between different sectors and speak the, the language, um, uh, so to speak, of, of each of those sectors and help translate between them and find the opportunities that, that create value um, between them. So, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'm a generalist. And do you think, you know, we hear a lot about digital disruption, about the robots taking over. And, and I think that speaks to any role that is specialized is going to be digitized. Do you feel that, and perhaps that's what the book range talks about, that, that the future you really do need to be uh, a generalist and perhaps that comes down to being adaptable and flexible? Well, I think it depends on the problem that we're trying to solve. So if we've got complex social, environmental, political problems, then I think actually um, bringing sort of diverse viewpoints to those problems is really important. Uh, if it's a difficult problem, but not a complex one, if it's, for example, brain surgery, you want someone that's done the same thing as an absolute specialist in that, uh, has done hundreds and hundreds of them. There's no doubt that if I've got someone operating in my brain in that way, I want them to, to be a specialist. Um, so it depends on the nature of the problem. But the problems that, that Save the Children is involved in are these you know, wicked problems. They're the really complex ones. And again, I think that's why it's so important for us uh, as an organisation to make sure that we're able to bring uh, the best of, of government thinkers of private enterprise and civil society together, um, that variety of viewpoints that helps us look at problems in new ways, find new solutions, uh, and then hopefully uh, over time to scale them to have really big impact. 
Very good. I think that's a great place to end it. Thank you for all your insights today. I think there's a really good download on, on the state of the charitable sector and the evolution that, that you guys are leading. So thank you. Great to be with you, John. <laughs>